A few weeks ago, we began our summer series on the parables of Christ. There are 40 of them, and we'll not be looking at all of them, but of the principal parables. We have been looking at the parable of the sower for the last few weeks. The parable of the sower that Pastor Anderson just read in your hearing a moment ago is about how people receive the preaching of the word. It is a profound tool for spiritual analysis. It answers the question, why don't all respond in the same way to the preaching of the word? And what this parable teaches us is when people hear there are two core responses. There is the response of belief and acceptance and obedience, or the response of unbelief, rejection, and disobedience. Jesus gave us this parable so we could see into the hearts of men in general and into our own in particular. But we will need the revealing, illuminating work of the Holy Spirit if we are to hear it rightly today. And so let's ask for that now. O Sovereign Lord, we ask that as you speak through your word now that you would give us ears that hear. We know the evil one is poised with all sorts of designs upon us to distract us in a hundred ways or to snatch away the word as soon as it comes forth. And so strengthen us now that we might hear the word, cling to the word, walk in the word, and bear the fruit of the word. We pray through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let me remind you of the context, a few things about this parable that make it so important. This parable is important because of the 40 parables our Lord spoke, we should have a burning interest in it, because first of all, it heightens and reveals the spiritual condition of the hearers. This, This parable is like a mirror held up to your face to show you who you truly are. It proves who has ears to hear. In this parable, we are told in Mark 4, verse 13, that it is the key to interpreting all the other 39 parables. Jesus said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Because what Jesus does is, hermeneutically, interpretively, he he tells us how this parable is to be understood. And it's a model, a template for us to lay over the other 39 parables. And this, is, this parable is important because it's the only parable repeated in detail in all three of the synoptic gospels. Now, if you've not been with us, let me encourage you to just go ahead and, and mark all three of the parallel occasions where this parable is told. It's told in Mark chapter 4 that you have open, I hope. It's told in Matthew 13 and Luke chapter 8. And in each of these tellings of the parable... Each of the gospel writers add a little bit more information. Again, they're not contradictory, but complementary. And then this parable is vital because it's the only one of the 40 that Jesus interprets in detail. Now, the content of this parable are are simple and they're alliterated. There are four elements to the parable, and you'll notice only one thing changes. The four elements to the parable. The first is seed. And the seed, we are told by Jesus, is the word of God. The second S is sowing. And this is the preaching of that word of God. The third element is the sower, the preacher, proclaimer. And I would actually demonstrate when we have the time that this is Christ preaching through men, is the sower. And the fourth thing, the only thing that changes in in these four different 
occasions are the soils. The soils represent the hearts of hearers. Now remember, Jesus is making a clear and powerful point in this parable. And it's this. Listen to me carefully. There is only one of these hearers who are converted. The other three are unconverted. The one who's converted is the fourth, and we will see it, God willing, in a couple of weeks. It's the good ground heart. Now, perhaps you grew up in an evangelical church which has succumbed over the last 60 years to what's known as the carnal Christian theory. Or some, even more crassly, call it the optional holiness theory, which says that a man can be saved, converted, regenerate, have the indwelling Holy Spirit, be on his way to heaven, and bear absolutely no fruit. Jesus, of course, refutes this when he says in John chapter 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should remain. Well, today we're going to examine the second of the hearts described. Remember, you are here. You are one of these four. And my prayer has been this week that you would recognize who you are as we examine it. Your name is in this parable, and so is your husband and your wife and your children and your parents. Now let me remind you of the the picture. This is an agricultural setting. Last week we saw the first type of hearer, the wayside hearer or the hard ground hearer. This is the hearer who's careless. He's disinterested spiritually. A lot of times it even shows up physically. He falls asleep. He is looking around at the shoes that other people are wearing. He's counting the ceiling tiles. He's completely disinterested. He's checked out during the preaching of the word. This is the heart of the reprobate. But not every unbeliever responds the same way. So there are two more types of unbelieving hearts to examine. What we'll look at today, the rocky ground here. And next week, the thorny ground here. Now, the rocky ground here, roll up your sleeves and think about this with me. And I, as I sat down this week, I started writing out. And it brought me great sadness. Shouldn't have been surprised, but it's still incredibly sad. I wrote out the names of people who have sat under my ministry for 35 years who have proven to be rocky ground hearers. Filled a few pages. This here, the rocky ground here, is the man that hears and makes some kind of start in the Christian life, but falls away. He's an apostate. Sandy and I are most familiar with uh, a couple who are dear friends. And in fact, um, they had approached us when they began having children. They started having children before we did, and we were such dear friends, they said, We want to put you down as the guardians for our children if something happens to us. And so we, with great trepidation, agreed to that. This is a man who was ahead of me in Christian college. He was so gifted, he won both the preaching award and the theology award his senior year. And if there was anybody in our college who you would have said, this is going to be the guy. This is going to be the guy who writes the books, and he's the R.C. Sproul and the Billy Graham, and and all that rolled into one. He went into the ministry, pastored for a few years, impacted people, had gospel success, and now has denied the faith for the last 30 years. Walked away from ministry, from his family, and from Christ. What is his condition? 
Can you be saved and then lost? Can you be saved but live like the devil? What about once saved, always saved? It is this particular soil or here, the rocky ground here, that answers these questions. Look at the text in Mark chapter 4, especially verse 16 through 17, where Jesus gives the interpretation of this phenomenon. And if you want to look even deeper, you can see the parallel passage in Luke 8 and Matthew 13. And here's the earthly phenomena, just so you'll understand what all Jesus' hearers understood. Before we understand the spiritual meaning, you have to get the earthly phenomena. You have to get deep into the agricultural world of first century Palestine. This is a man, a farmer, who's in his field that's been plowed. And he's walking through the field, sowing seed. We've already seen it last week, the first picture. The first picture is the the sower walks through the field. He casts the seed. Some of it falls at his feet on the hardened path that goes through the field. And, And as the sower walks, he steps on that seed, tramples it, the birds come along and devour it. Jesus said that first picture is the picture of the hard heart that receives the word carelessly, thoughtlessly. Satan comes and snatches it away. That's happening right now in this room. Because you see, whenever the word is preached, it's typical that all four responses are happening. So the first is happening right now. But the second is the rocky ground. What about the seed that goes out in the field? Well, some of it falls in the field. Where the soil all looks alike on top. But it's not alike beneath the surface. It's a rocky soil. Now, don't misunderstand the figure of speech. This is not a field with big boulders jutting up in it, no. This is a type of shallow soil with a layer of rock just inches beneath the surface. And as the farmer plowed, the plow went through it, and it kind of skipped over this part. It didn't get deep in the soil like good ground. And on the top, you can't tell how deep the soil is that just beneath the surface is a ledge of rock. So the farmer came along and he sowed the whole field, sowed indiscriminately, throws seed everywhere, and he goes into the house to do what farmers do, to wait. A few days go by. A little rain falls. You look outside and there's a portion of the field that already has plants coming up. They spring up immediately. Why? Because the area of the field where they are is a hotbed of chemicals. You've got this shallow bit of soil. You've got the sun coming in. You've got the heat and the chemicals all in this this very shallow depth of soil. So germination takes place in an accelerated fashion. First thing a seed does, the roots go down. They hit the layer of rock. They don't go deep. The process is reversed. All the energy comes up with the stalk of the ground. That means the germinating process was shortcut, the root system was truncated, and now the stalk goes up. It goes up before all the other plants in the field because they're still putting down roots. The stalk comes up, the word that Jesus uses is immediately. The farmer, at least the novice farmer, looks at his field and gets excited and says, Look, I've already got growth. It's coming up already. He's excited about this part of the field. The rest of the field hasn't come up yet. It'll come up later, much later. But then in a few days, the sun comes up. 
And that section of the field doesn't get a lot of water and the two or three inches of soil is dried out and the plant doesn't have a root system. And so the same thing that made it spring up quickly kills it quickly. The shallow depth of soil and the withering sun. All of a sudden, this farmer who was so excited about this portion of the field loses the portion of the field. The end result, there's no substantive difference from what we saw last week, the hard ground on the path. Nothing is harvested. No fruit is born. That's the agricultural picture. Now let's look at Jesus' interpretation. Look clearly at Mark 4, verse 16 and 17. Unlike the hard ground here who we saw last week, the first type of unbelieving, non-fruit-bearing here, unlike the hard ground here who just ignores the message of the gospel, this hearer says, this is for me. He hears about the forgiveness of sin, and look what we're told in Mark 4.16. Look carefully at his emotions. He receives it with gladness. He hears about eternal life, receives it with gladness. He responds, look again at Mark 4.16. He doesn't have to be urged. He responds immediately with fervor. He's enthusiastic. Now note carefully, there's no problem with the seed here. This hearer has heard the actual preaching of the word. It's not a deficient gospel. It's the good seed. The sower didn't sow tares. This fellow is so zealous that if he heard that Sunday morning, why, we'd have him testify that Sunday evening. Not only does he respond immediately and with gladness and joy, Luke 8.13 tells, he produces something. Look carefully at the text. He produces something. It can be called growth. It's certainly not fruit. Another parable calls this weeds. In fact, if you take a plant that's in good soil six feet away, the good ground plant will lag behind this plant. Now let's move on to six months or Two years later. You know what happens to this hearer? He wakes up and realizes, hey, the Christian life is about obedience and discipleship. There aren't just gospel benefits, there are also gospel duties. And he begins to backpedal and says, I didn't buy into this. I don't want to deal with my sin. I don't want somebody else's will to be the law of my life. And then comes the trial. Look at Mark 4.17. The trial might be persecution because of his identification with the word. It might be tribulation. Or according to Luke 8, it might be serious temptation. And this one, the second type of here, the rocky ground here, he withers under the trial. And he falls by the wayside. This is the kind of hearer that initially says yes to free grace. Yes to the sovereignty of God. Yes to justification by faith alone. Yes to heaven and eternal life. But then upon closer examination he says no to repentance. No to mourning over sin. No to personal holiness. No to the mortification of sin. No to obedience to God's law. He says no to anything that is costly because he has, listen to me carefully, and now I'm holding the mirror up. Do you see your face here? He
He says no to those things because he's temporarily and selectively believed. We are so foolish oftentimes as evangelicals. This person who receives the word immediately with joy is is sometimes pushed and shoved into positions of responsibility and leadership. Never seeing if he'll say yes to holiness, maturity, obedience, growth, cross-bearing. Here's the sad bottom line. The rocky ground here is the plant who withers and dies. He bears no fruit. So I want to spend an inordinate amount of time applying this to you and I, helping us to understand this spiritual phenomena. Because many is the believer who is confused, distraught over this, and should not be. Because Jesus told us this is commonplace. This is one of the four types of responses, and it's happening right now in this room, as is the third and the fourth and the first. And you know people who have responded this way. And it troubles you. And so let me make several applicatory statements for us as a congregation to help us understand this phenomena and not be surprised by it when it occurs in our midst or even in our families. A first application. We have to confess that such a class of people really exists. When you look at this rocky ground here, let me ask, does this not fit into your theology? Listen carefully to me. Some of you grew up as I did with an aberration known as once saved, always saved. But what was meant by that was actually once confessed, always saved. I grew up on that. And this was shoved into my face when we took our first call. I was assistant pastor at Mount Calvary Presbyterian Church in Walnut Grove. It's just over in South Spartanburg County, a beautiful place. I'd been at the church for a month, and I drove up to the Walnut Grove General Store in 1987. And as I walked in there, pumped some gas, walked in, and this elderly gentleman walked up to me, and he said, you're the new preacher at Mount Calvary, aren't you? Yes, I am. And he said, it's good to meet you. I'm a member there. And I said, don't believe I've seen you. Mount Calvary wasn't that large a church then, and I thought I'd met everybody. And I said, I don't believe I've met you. So I haven't been there in 30 years. And I said, really? Why not? And he said, there's no need. And I said, well, now you've got my attention. I said, so tell me about this membership business. He said, yeah. I said, they were having a revival there 30 years ago. Preacher said, if you'll walk this aisle and sign this card, you'll be saved and on your way to heaven. And nobody can snatch you out of the Lord's hands, no matter how you live. He said, I thought that was the best sounding deal I'd ever heard. So I walked that aisle, signed that card, joined the church, and I've never been back since. And he said, I am staking my life. The more we talked, he said, I am believing that preacher, once saved, always saved, man. And so as I tried to explain to him, no, that's an aberration. What we believe in is the perseverance of the saints. He said, nope, I'm going with what that guy said 30 years ago. So my friend, listen carefully. As Calvinists, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe deeply, 
firmly in the perseverance of the saints. Not only will God's salvation be permanent, it will be evident. The believer will bear fruit. This is why Jesus said, if you abide, if you persevere in my word, you're my disciples indeed. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, says, Brethren, I declare to the gospel to you, which I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's a vast difference between once confessed, always saved, and the perseverance of the saints. God's word is not afraid to deal with this. A classic example is 1 John 2.19, where John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were ever of us. You see, the rocky ground here was never in union with Christ. They had a response, but not a relationship. This is the apostate heart. Last week we saw the reprobate heart. Apostate means literally, once having stood with the truth, to now stand apart from the truth. And so the first thing I want to convince you of is, Jesus is explaining spiritual experience. You know people like this. Don't be confused. Don't be disheartened. Such a class of people really exists. The second application. We don't need to simply understand this class of people. We need to stop catering to it. We've watered down the call to the gospel so it's no longer a call to discipleship. We'll say, let's take out anything out of the gospel message that could possibly offend. It's interesting when you look at Jesus, how often he proclaims the message of the kingdom and he never lets up for a momentary decision. Brothers and sisters, when we do evangelism, we must tell people, when you exercise faith in Christ, you are trusting a sovereign king who will transform you. He'll change your finances. He'll change your priorities. He'll give you spiritual gifts so you may labor and serve in his church. He will demand your all. Let's not produce rocky soil hearers. Let's evangelize by telling men and women the full gospel. Another applicatory point. All joyful and immediate responses to the preaching of the word are not necessarily saving responses. Let's say that again. All joyful and immediate responses to the preaching of the word are not necessarily saving responses. Notice what we're told in Mark 4.16. This hearer received the word immediately and with gladness. He doesn't bow the knee grudgingly. He doesn't make a shotgun profession. But listen, just because someone makes some kind of beginning with Christ means little. I want to demonstrate this to you even in the ministry of Jesus. Look back at John chapter 6. Keep a finger in your copy of God's word and look back at John 6. And I want you to see this in the ministry of Jesus. And this happened with some frequency. In John 6... Jesus has been teaching about election. He's been making claims to exclusivity. And then we read this interaction in John 6, beginning in verse 59. We read, and by the way, this is in his home district. In Galilee, John 6, 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. He says this to people who have just been called his disciples. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. Now stare at verse 66. From that time, many, look at the quantitative analysis, many of his disciples. These are people who would call themselves at that moment a disciple of Jesus. And there were many of them, perhaps in this room right now. There are many rocky soil hearers. And here's the evidence. Look at the end of John 66. They walked with him no more. They didn't persevere. They didn't bear fruit. Notice what Jesus says to some of his followers in verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe. And then we find out, sure enough, in verse 66, some of his disciples went back and followed him no more. Another applicatory point. The problem with this hearer is... No depth. Just like the plant in the field, it's, it's in soil, it's this deep. This is the person who never grapples deeply with what it means to be a sinner. He's never meditated carefully on the glory of Christ, his three offices, his sinless life, his atonement, his resurrection, his sanctifying work. This is the person who's never had any depth in personal piety, no prayer or study of the word. The only encounter he ever has with the living God is for a few minutes on Sundays. Another application, and I want you to pay such careful attention here. Because this is the crux point for the rocky ground here. The following realities are what reveal the true state of a hearer. Look at Mark 4.17. It's tribulation or persecution from the word. Do you see what we're told in verse 17? And they have no root in themselves, and so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Everything is fine until the sun came up and the heat was on. What did the sun do? It revealed there was no depth. When the sun rose, it simply revealed that no depth of soil existed. When troubles come, they simply reveal what you're made of. It's important to note that hard trials, unexpected trials, will come to faithful Christians. And this is part of the proving process for the believer. The proponents of health and wealth theology need to read their Bibles who say, Oh, if you're a believer, you won't have any trials and tribulations. My friend, uh, along with all our other hundred problems we have with the health and wealth gospel. They don't understand the nature of spiritual experience. God will bring those trials and tribulations to prove who is a believer or not. Think of how often this is taught to us in the scripture. Jesus said in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulations, be of good cheer. 
or Paul's words in Acts 14, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Or Paul's final words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. Or Peter writing in the midst of a, of a huge national trial in 1 Peter 4 says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial as though something odd is happening to you. Christians should never be surprised when trials come. They will come and God will use them to mature you. We often sinfully say when we enter a trial or a persecution, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? Will it ever end? We run to anger and despair and frustration. The scriptures, by the way, give repeated warnings about complaining in a time of trial, like the murmuring Israelites in the wilderness. And the evil one, when the trial comes, will tempt you to brood and feed your frustration with resentment against others and even God and slide over into apostasy. James tells us that these trials usually come suddenly. He says that we should consider it all joy when we fall into various trials and temptations. You don't have to go. By the way, if you're here this morning and you think, well, Carl, I, I want to prove that I'm really a believer, so what I need to do is go, go seek out some trials and tribulations. My friend, God has your address. He knows where you live. We usually fall into trials. They usually come to you when you think they're the most inconvenient. All you can do is control your attitude and reaction in the trial. Knowing how to interpret events and actions is a large part of wisdom. But your values will determine how you view a trial. If you value comfort more than character, trials will always throw you off course. If you value the material more than the spiritual, you'll not be able to count it all joy. If you live only for the present and not for the future, trials will make you bitter and not better. Job, of course, so thankful for Pastor Anderson's series through Job on Sunday nights. It's been brilliant. Has the right outlook in Job 23 when he says, When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. A religion that can't stand the, the heat of the sun. Persecution, tribulation, temptation is absolutely worthless. In the good ground, as we'll see later, it's the sun, tribulation, persecution, temptation, that causes that plant to thrive and flourish. Sandy and I have debates about gardening. This is what happens when you get to be our age. And we have a two-person gardening club between us. And, and my favorite in the backyard is, for those of you amateurs who don't know such things, we have in the backyard Lantana Kermara better known as Miss Huff. And Miss Huff is this gorgeous, huge bush that sometimes threatens to take over our whole backyard. The hotter it gets, the brighter she shines. She's beautiful, orange, yellow, red. And every year on February 1st, we go out and have the ceremonial cutting down to the ground of Miss Huff. And we always think, will she come back next year? Sure enough, here comes the rain, here comes the sun. The hotter it gets, the more she likes it. And so now, the last week or so, if you come in our house, you can barely see our house because Miss Huff has sort of taken over it. That's because that's who she is, that she loves the heat. She loves the, the tribulation. It just causes her to, to grow more beautiful. What does tribulation do for a real believer? Look at Mark 4.17. Here's what it does for a fake believer. 
They have no root in themselves and endure only for a time. When tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Do you know what tribulation does for a real believer? James 1 says, the testing of your faith will produce patience. Romans 5 says, we glory in tribulations, knowing they produce perseverance, character, and hope. Tribulations only make the real Christians thrive. Listen to what we hear from Revelation chapter 7. One of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Not one saint comes home to heaven until he's tried by fire. Untried faith is no faith. God will try and test his people. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater proof of how vital your spiritual life is than these things. Hardship. Difficulty. Opposition. Tribulation. Persecution. Temptation. And so let me ask you. Have you been tried and tested? Has the heat been turned up on you? If not, it will. How will you respond in the day of testing? Will you rejoice or grow bitter and wander away? Will you become more resolute or lose heart? Prepare now, plan now to cling to Christ no matter what difficulty comes your way. Many will follow the Lord if he never prunes them or commands them or test them, but not if he tries them. They will never say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so perhaps the most important thing that we should learn collectively as a congregation is time. Time is the great revealer of a true work of grace. Time. Look at Mark 4.17 in our text where Jesus says, they have no root in themselves and so only endure for a time. Luke 8 says it this way, they believe for a while. This is so hard for us to learn, isn't it? At times it seems the responses to the gospel are so few and far between, and then here comes someone that responds with gladness, and we just can't stand it. We're beside ourselves. The Apostle John writes this way in 3 John I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. I'm sure John the Apostle had a, had a measure of joy when he saw people profess saving faith, but he rejoiced when he truly saw, over the long haul, fruit born in the person's life, when he saw people walking in the truth. Let me be clear. I don't think that when somebody comes to me or you and they desire to have a saving relationship with Christ, I should say, uh, harumph, I'll believe it when I see it. I believe we should have a measure of joy and rejoice with them. And then as they identify more and more with Christ and his church, as they deepen in their love for the word and begin to mature spiritually and bring forth fruit and have a deepening sensitivity to sin, we should rejoice more. And then as they go through hard tribulations, even persecution, and they emerge on the other side, we should positively burst with joy. 
Every time they understand and apply truth, every time they resist temptation and cling to Christ, is only evidence that there's real depth of soil. A notorious drunk who hung out outside the front doors of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 1860s was converted, walked in and was converted, made a profession of faith one day under Charles Haddon Spurgeon's ministry. An elder came rushing up to Spurgeon and said, Isn't this great? He's been soundly converted. Spurgeon didn't seem to be so excited. And the elder said, Why aren't you rejoicing? And Spurgeon replied, How can we know in a moment what it takes a lifetime to reveal? The Christian life is not a quick start. Walking an aisle, signing a card, praying a prayer... But it's a lifetime of God's grace and power being worked out in the life of a man as he bears gospel fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would sustain us for the long haul. We don't want to be fast starters, but strong finishers. Nourish us for the race, the the marathon that we must run. We pray in the name of the one who is faithful to the end, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.